Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This podcast is brought to you by GrownBuy. Join farmers from across the U.S. who are selling direct on the first cooperatively owned sales app, GrownBuy. You can easily manage CSAs of any scale, organize your spring plant sales, move that freezer meat, or even sell wholesale on GrownBuy. Farm shops are free to build with lots of inventory options. You can accept credit cards and offline payments, and their pick lists and pack sheets do the job. Customers will get automated notifications on orders, refunds, and pickups. There is no startup fees, no monthly or yearly subscriptions, no additional charge for tech support. The only cost is a small co-op service charge for online processing. However, as a listener of the Thriving Farmer podcast, you get 50% off your first three months of co-op service charges on GrownBuy. Email their very friendly farmer support team at grow at farmgenerations.coop to get this offer. Check it out at grownby.com or download the app on the Google Play or Apple App Stores. GrownBuy, the farmer-owned marketplace. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today, my guest is Kelly Shepard, who is the co-owner of What the Farm, a regenerative farm that specializes in chicken, pork, lamb, and beef in Virginia Beach, Virginia. With a background in business coaching, her primary focus is helping farmers achieve profitability through agritourism, education, and subscription-based sales. Kelly believes that the only way to grow the sustainable farm movement is to make a win-win for both farmers and consumers. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Thank you so much. So give me a little bit of, uh, it sounds like you were in business coaching and you moved to farming. What caused the shift? So I'm still in business coaching. Um, I do okay. that at the same time. Um, but really how we got here, we're first generation farmers. Um, mm -hmm. We're a military family. My husband and I um, were in Australia for three years as part of an exchange program with the Navy, with our children. Uh -huh. um, and that's really where we started to see that the American food system is broken. And it's hard to see that sometimes when you're in the middle of it. But when you take a step out of it, um, we just had example after example of how food was different, mm. uh, how food went bad quickly because it wasn't loaded with preservatives. Animals were raised different ways. And so that's how we got into farming. When we moved back to the States, uh, we decided that we just wanted to get a little bit of land and try and do some things for ourselves. So it really started as a, a homesteading situation. Mm. And um, we quickly learned that there's there's a desire for local food in our area. So it just kind of grew from there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then when you started the farm there, did you have land that you started on? Did you have to go find land? So when we moved back, we bought seven acres um, outside of Virginia Beach, uh, a little area called Pungo. And so we had, we built, well, we came to a hobby farm. So we bought a farm that was already fenced in. We had a barn. Um, yeah. And we just started with chickens. And our last name is Shepherd. So we thought it was a good idea to have sheep. Uh -huh. And so we bought a couple sheep and um, and then it just kind of grew from there. So, yeah, I'm and with, and you didn't have a background in agriculture before this. No, no, no background at all. 
Um, my grandparents owned a restaurant. I'm, I've always been big into food. Our family has always um, appreciated sitting around the table. And so food has always been a very big part of mm -hmm. our life, and, um, but no farming experience at all. So did you have any fun stories along the way of things you figured out? Oh my gosh. How long is this podcast? <laughs> well, I've got a, got a meeting at 11, <laughs> so we got an hour. <laughs> um, no, it's just thing after thing. Our first chickens, like the very first chickens that we had, we put them in a cardboard box in our living room. I mean, uh -huh. these are the things that you just don't, you just don't realize um, that are bad ideas until after, you know, they're done. I'm still wiping dust from four years ago. That's just like where the chickens uh -huh. lived. Um, yep. We, we have they a, have that feather dust. And I don't uh, think people realize it until you have chickens, but it's this, yeah. it's this feather dust. Yeah. It's disgusting. Uh -huh, it really uh -huh. should not be in your living room. <laughs> so, um, so things like that. We have a pet sheep named Wilson. He um, was rejected by his mom when, and he was one of the first sheep born on our farm. Um, our, we have Barbados black bellies. They typically have twins and a lot mm. of times they'll reject one. Um, this animal probably, we should have let nature take its course, but we were young and we were new. Yeah. And I bottle fed that baby um, in the middle of the night. He came in our house. He goes in our swimming pool and he's a complete terror and menace because yeah. he teaches all the other sheep bad habits. Um, yeah. You know, and so those are things you just don't know, like separating yourself from the nature of farming. Yeah. Yeah. So talk us through then you kind of started with the different animals. What were your first sales outlets? And did you, you know, did you start for yourselves and then realize, oh my gosh, I've got too much. We need to sell it. So we started with um, friends. We did 40 broilers was like our first project. We did, I think we did 40 broilers and like um, chickens for meat. Uh -huh. And then we did a couple of turkeys. And so we just did it for our family. Yeah. Um, and then our first sales were really eggs. Um, and it was during the pandemic when the, at the beginning, so we were delivering eggs to people's doorsteps. Um, that was our first generating income experience. Um, and then we did, I think we did probably 300 chickens the next year. And that's when we knew that we had to go somewhere. We had to find a way to find, to sell our product. Um, and we went, we found a great farmer's market, uh, that generously let us come and fail our way forward there. We mm -hmm. only sold whole chickens. Uh, we never butchered any chickens before that and to pieces. And, um, that's really where we started. Yeah. And the sheep were just for fun in the beginning. Yeah. When did you get to the point of like, okay, this is now a business and we're going to take it seriously and, you know, figure everything out and make it that. Yeah. In 2018, um, my husband just retired this year. So he spent 24 years in the Navy and about three years before he was going to retire, we decided that this is what we wanted to set up for him to do when he retired. Mm. And so that was in 2018, 19 is where we really started trying to scale and figure out how to, to make this work, which is difficult when he was gone a lot. So, you know, a lot of the stuff had to happen with him not being here. 
um, me and my kids. And so that's when we decided, you know, we can do this. It's not, it's not always pretty, but we can do this. And um, that's when we really started planning out, you know, looking at what it would take um, to make this a real job. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you have a pretty wide range of ways you actually bring income in. Talk us through a little bit of those um, different ones that you do. So we do um, we do a farm camp. So we do a lot of agritourism. One of the things that I found out very quickly is that when you're doing regenerative farming, there's only so many animals you can scale up and still actually be regenerative. You know, you can't overcrowd your pastures. Um, so you have to find unique ways to make money. And so we only had seven acres when we started. So you can imagine you can't move a whole lot of animals through there without depleting the soil. Yeah. Um, since that time, we've bought 26 additional acres next door to us. Um, but we've done, we do farmer's markets. We have a farm camp, a little summer camp that we do in the summertime, Um, we teach homeschool classes to other homeschool kids. Our kids were homeschooled for a little bit. Um, they decided that they did not want me to be their teacher anymore. So they actually went back to school. Um, but we continued a homeschool program. So moms can bring their kids out and learn about the life cycle of a chicken or Mm -hmm. how to grow, you know, their favorite veggies in the garden. Um, so that's one of the ways that we bring in income, Um, We have a small uh, organic grocery store that we serve, and then we have a meat subscription. Um, And those are the ways that we kind of bring money into um, our our home. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's break down those classes to homeschoolers. Um, Share a little bit more about like how you have that set up, how you marketed that. Yeah. So I was, I went to school to become a teacher so I have a background in teaching before my third son, my third child was born. I was a teacher um, for over a decade. And so uh, I just run it like a very loose and happy classroom, I guess. Okay. Um, we would just teach any of the stuff that, that we're doing. What, I, what we found is that people want to know. People are really curious right now how our food gets to our table. And kids are the best way to to really change a system, right? Mm. It's hard to change the mind of an adult. Um, but kids can learn things that that can impact them throughout the rest of their life. So we just started with a little outdoor classroom. We've got little tables set up and chairs. And anything that I was learning, I just made it accessible to other kids and their parents because their parents come to the classes too. They don't leave their kids here. They, they come yeah. and join them. And, um, so yeah, we just do, um, my mom helps. We do cooking classes. We do all kind of animal husbandry classes. We do, um, soil education, um, talk about biomes and all kinds of good stuff and, uh, let the kids run around. That's really the biggest thing when their eyes start glazing over, then it's time to run and play. All right. Go meet the animals. So then how do you charge for those classes? Is it by the family? Is it by the individual? So we've done it a couple of ways. So there are lots of home um, homeschool co-ops. And so yep. some co-ops will bring their whole group out. And so we charge like a group fee, like a field trip. Yeah. Um, we also have individuals that will charge an individual price. 
And um, last year we started a subscription for families because um, it's easy for a family of one to, you know, pay a per kid ticket price. You know, most of our classes are $20. Um, but when you've got four children, it's just not economical. Yeah. Um, you've got a one income home, right? Because somebody's mm-hmm. staying at home. And so then we decided that we would just do a subscription base for those families with multiple children. So they can sign up and they pay a monthly fee and they can come to as many classes as they want to. That's very cool. Yeah. And I mean, again, these are the kids a lot of the time who you really want to be able to get this education. Um, Well, I mean, what you guys are doing is so important because so many people need this too. So you want to make it as accessible as possible. I'm wondering if there is like nonprofits or even federal dollars that you could get for some of your classes. Maybe. Yeah. It's something Um, that we haven't looked into. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't either, but um it's, it's always, I know there's so much out there. It's just a matter of knowing where it is and having the time to sit down and write the grant. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. And so then the summer farm camp, that's just more to all different types of kids. And that's how many weeks is that? Yep. So it's a week long camp. Um, so the kids come from five day for five days from nine to three. So their parents pick them up every day. This is a drop-off camp. Okay. Um, and basically they spend their day doing five different activities. So, you know, they have a arts and crafts class. They have an animal husbandry class. They have a cooking class with my mom. They have a gardening class um, and then lots and lots of outdoor time and exploration. And um, we repeat that four times. So we do four weeks of summer camp uh-huh. um, and it's just been fabulous. It, it's one of my favorite things that we do here um, because kids, kids make things alive, you know, yeah. and it's just great having them here. Okay. And so what kind of staffing does that take? So it takes quite a bit of staffing. Um, we have for each of those areas, you know, for our culinary program, for our gardening program, animal husbandry program. So there's a staff member for each of those areas. Okay. Then you have a college age counselor. Um, and then you have maybe a high schooler. Um as an assistant. So you've got a staff member, a counselor, assistant counselor, um, me running around all over the place. Um, and we do 24 kids at a time. It's not a huge thing. Um, it's a smaller camp. We only see a hundred kids a summer, um, because that's, what's manageable for us and for our property. Cause it's taking place inside my home. Like we don't have a big education facility, um, they cook in my kitchen and yes. you know, play in our garden and, and all that stuff. So yeah. Yeah. What ages typically come? So we do five to 11. Okay. Just five to 11. So you keep them younger. That's actually, that's yeah, that's very smart. Um, all right, cool. Yeah. And do you have all this stuff on your website too? So folks want to go check all that out. You can go to what the farm dot com and uh, under events all the information on that yeah i think i find that wildly cool we've got um a former employee that is that's their passion is to do that camps kind of thing and she's done camps through her church but we'd love to have her to do some sort of farm camp um there's no way we can handle that just because of all the things we've got going on but i think that is so important um and, and and so valuable for everyone Hey, Thriving Farmers listeners. Did you know that customers buy nearly 30% more when shopping on an app? I mean, it makes sense. An app keeps your products top of mind and easy for your customers to order again and again. 
That's why my farm and hundreds of farmers across the country are selling on GrownBuy, the farmer-owned marketplace. I'm Lindsay Leshashoot, co-founder and farmer. With GrownBuy, your CSA or market customers are always connected to your farm because your store is on the app. They can favorite your farm, leave you a review, and get order notifications. It's basically a farmer's market in their pocket. This year, we use GrownBuy on my farm to sell hundreds of CSA shares, seasonal pies, whole lambs, quarter pigs, and Thanksgiving turkeys. Our customers love it because it is just easy. They don't have to remember our website or anything like that. We're just there on their phones, on the app. GrownBuy is the only farmer-owned sales platform, and we'd love to help you sell more next season. Setting up shop takes less than an hour. We charge a 2% co-op fee per transaction, but customers can cover it for you, so the cost turns out to be pretty minimal and well worth the investment because you have saved time and sold more. Listeners to the Thriving Farmers podcast get 50% off their first three months on GrownBuy. Just email us at grow, G-R-O-W, at farmgenerations.coop to get this offer, and Michael will link to us in today's show notes. You can find GrownBuy at grownby.com, G-R-O-W-N-B-Y.com, or on the Google Play or Apple App Stores under GrownBuy. I look forward to seeing your farm on GrownBuy this season. Talk us through a little bit, because I know you said uh, your meat CSA. Do you give people everything that you produce? Is there a, do they, is it like a you know chicken uh, chicken like monthly subscription? So we do. We call it the Buyers Club. So uh-huh. it's not a CSA per se. It's really just a monthly meat subscription. Um, and what we focus on is twofold. So it's a, a lot of the products that we have here at our farm. And we also have some community partners. And so what happened was two years ago, when the farmer's markets ended, me and all the other vendors are sitting there like, okay, how are we going to make money November, December, January, February, and March while we're waiting for the next, yeah. you know, markets to start. And, um, And you have a lot of customers that are just looking at you like, where am I going to get my chicken? How am I Mm going to get chops Um, when the farmer's market's not open? And so we started very small. We had 16 families um, commit to trying our buyer's club. And so what we would do is we would just put together a package every month. Um, most of it was stuff from our farm. And then I would call my friends and say, okay, um, you know, are you interested in, in putting coffee in the meat box this month? And yeah. so we might get coffee from one vendor and we get specialty cheeses from another vendor. Um, and we pay normal price for that. Um, sometimes we would pay wholesale price. Sometimes we would just pay retail price, whatever okay. they wanted us to pay. Um, and then we give that to our customers. And so they got this variety box every month. So it's, it wasn't anything structured, um, as we've developed it. One of the things that, that we've noticed is, and I'm sure every farmer knows this, it's really easy to get rid of some cuts of meat and it's really Uh hard to get rid of other cuts of meat to sell those. Yeah, yeah. And so the premise behind our buyers club is that you're supporting the whole farm. And so Mm -hmm. you're going to get odd things in your box sometimes, and we're going to give you a recipe so that you can try them. So we did pork neck bones a few months ago um, and gave them a recipe because pork neck bones are amazing. They're like ribs. They're delicious, but people just don't, they just don't know how to cook them. And so um, 
the, the new box. So we take the month of March off to kind of regroup and in April um, with our chicken portion of that, they're getting the equivalent of so many whole birds. So for every two breasts they get somewhere in that box in the future months, they're going to get two leg quarters. They're going to get two wings. They're going to get two tenders. And we just educate them with, with the fact that for every chicken breast I sell, I have to sell the other parts Mm -hmm. so that I can continue farming. And so um, just educating people about that, they're happy to do that if they know what to do with it, if they know they have a recipe. Um, And so it's been really, really successful for us. It's, um, it's a fun way to incorporate other vendors in our community and, um, and, you know, keep our farm afloat in the off season. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So then, um, with those pork neck bones, cause I've actually never eaten those. I'm assuming that's more of a crock pot, low and slow thing. It is a low and slow. Yeah. Okay. You can do it in, in the oven. Um, you can always do it in the crock pot too. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. All right. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the, I know you're working with the Savory Institute on some new acreage you've got. I think you got 26 new acres. Talk us through kind of like what the process there is. So we had, there's a program called the Ecological Outcome Verification Program. And um, I'm working directly with the Rubinia Institute, which is a hub for the Savory Uh Institute in our area. Um, And what they do is this EOV is a five-year study on your land because we have tons of people saying, oh, I'm a regenerative farmer and, you know, I do regenerative practices. Well, if there's no data, then how do we know if you're truly Mm, being regenerative? And so um, that was important to me and my husband is to know, like, are we doing the things we think we're doing? Are they actually working? Yes. And so this program, they do um, a base study the first year. And then for four to five years after that, every year they come out and test all of the same things. So they're looking at um, the microfauna. They're looking at bare soil. Uh, They're doing tons of soil testing. Uh, They're looking at the variety of species that you have, the variety of species of grass. Um, that you have and all of these amazing, um, you know, just markers and every year, and then they kind of help you. They're like, okay, for us, we had the lowest score in our region. Um, it's a base score. Um, but we're also converting a crop, like a, a monocrop situation next door. So for the last, you know, five to six decades, they have grown corn, wheat, and soy there. It's been heavily, um, you know, sprayed. And yeah. so it, we kind of were expecting that. And so with this EOV program, they tell you like, this is what, this is what we think is going to be the best path for you. You know, heavy animal impact, um, yeah. lots of rest for the soil. Um, and what we're trying to do is we're not doing anything to that land except animal impact and rest. Um, we're not seeding it. We're not doing any amendments. We're just going to see what nature can do without, you know, us messing with it too much. We're just going to move the animals and, um, let it rest. And so I'm super excited because then in July this year, they'll come back and do that year one test. And if our numbers improve, then we're certified regenerative. 
because we have data to prove it. Yeah. And we know that the practices that we're using are actually doing what we say that, that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So then the, the reason you got to the low score is just because of how poor the land had been cared for before you got it. That's correct. Yeah. Because there was, you know, it was bare soil. Yeah. Um, it's heavily compacted. Um, Daniel, who is the person that um, runs the Rabinia Institute was actually here a few weeks ago um, just to kind of walk around and see. And it's amazing what yeah. happens when you just leave it alone, you know, let it go fallow. Um, we just actually put animals on there last month. So for, you know, several months, six to eight months, it just sat there. We just yeah. let it sit. So. And are you going to do any like not chisel plowing, but more like, um, you know, breaking up the compaction with maybe like a, a key line plow or something like that? We're not yet. Okay. We're trying to just see what we have our, um, we have sheep and mm -hmm. cows over there right now. Um, and then chickens just started. So we just started, um, rotating our chickens. Um, and so we're just going to see what it does. We're not opposed to doing other things mm -hmm. if we need to, but we're just going to watch it and see if, if this works, because if it does, it can, we can help lots and lots of people, do the same thing because it's not expensive. You know, when you start seeding and you start plowing and you start doing all these things, it takes a lot of manpower, labor, yeah. Yeah. Um, and money. And so if we can find a way to do it without spending very much money, um, I think it's going to be helpful to more people. Gotcha. Yeah. And just let the worms do the work for you and the roots because yeah. both of those will, it just is going to take longer. Typically. It just takes longer yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so then, um, with that 26 acres, do you have a long-term lease on that now? So we bought that. Oh, so you we bought, bought that. Okay. Yeah. Store in, um, about six months ago. Gotcha. All right. Very cool. Um, so tell us a little bit about like, I know you also work with farmers. Tell us a little bit about that part of your, your, um, where you spend your time. Yeah. So we, um, like I said earlier, I'm a business coach. Um, I've spent a lot of time helping people outside of agriculture, um, scale their business and find profitability. And my goal has always been to help farmers do that because, mm -hmm. um, we're a very underserved population in the area of business coaching. You don't find a ton of, of farmers who have a business coach, yeah. um, but and a lot of people just don't run their farm like a business. But if we want more people to become farmers, we have to make it worth their time. And for it to be worth their time, it's a lot of hard work. They've got mm. to be able to make some money and have a good life. Um, and I think that that's lacking in, in farming and in agriculture because they everybody works so hard. And, uh, you know, we don't always get a lot for it you know, monetarily, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I like to, I, I just use the same tools that we use for someone who's, you know, a stockbroker or somebody who runs a bakery. Um, you know, these are the people that, you know, occupational therapists, those are people that I coach outside of farming and I'm using those same tools. You know, we have scorecards, we have, um, you know, worksheets to figure out profitability and, um, I'm loving being able to go to um, different areas, to conventions and th things like that and teach people, you know, this is how you can make sure that you're making enough money on your eggs. You know, uh -huh. 
here's the math. Here's how you can figure out how much it actually costs you to raise a pig, because we don't always see that. Um, and farmers never pay themselves or very rarely pay themselves for their time, right? And if you don't pay yourself for your time, you're never going to be able to step out of that position and pay someone else um, because it's not set up in your, your economic plan to do that, yes. right? And yes. so um, those are the things. And uh, that's probably sounds really nerdy, but that's what I love to do. Yeah, well, it's... Yeah, it's the absolute important stuff that has to be done. Um, I mean, like we, our farm business has multiple enterprises. And the first thing we do always is run the numbers on it. Like, how does this fit into the overall big picture? And um, we, and for like, for one of our businesses, we ship hardwood cuttings and comfrey cuttings around the nation. And someone came with us say, hey, you know, I'd like to hook you into our store and you have you fulfill our orders, but they needed a certain percentage. And so, you know, of course, the first thing was sitting down, what is our margin? You know, can we afford this? You know, all the different aspects of, you know, what does that pencil out to be? Because, um, you know, on paper, it sounds like a great idea, but behind the mm -hmm. scenes, it may sink you. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we found out with eggs. Um, you know, we don't make money on eggs here. Like we would have to charge an enormous amount of money that people don't want to pay and for every egg layer we have on our farm, that's one less broiler that we can have mm -hmm. on our farm, you know? And so understanding that you think that if I charge $8 a dozen for eggs, that I'm going to make a lot of profit. And the truth was that that's not actually the case. We're actually losing money because we can't put a broiler in that space. Yeah. Um, and it's really important for small farms to understand that because we have to pick and choose what it is that we are going to focus on, right? Yeah. And if we don't know the numbers, what what we think makes us the most money may not actually be, you know, the best way. Absolutely. Um, I think like if you look at Seven Sons, they are at the scale that they can have, you know, I think it's, I don't know how many 10,000 chickens they have, but they have a lot. And they are, because they've scaled up, eggs actually are quite profitable for them. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a common misperception for most vegetable farmers is that tomatoes are their biggest moneymaker and cash wise. Yes. But when you factor in the labor, they actually come in very low on the, the, the list. Yeah. Um, especially if you're doing greenhouse production and doing all the trellising and the pruning and the grafting and that sort of thing. So right. it's always just interesting to actually look at your numbers. And I think that's something that every single farmer needs to be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they just need, people just need a little direction, mm -hmm. you know, um, farmers are hard workers. Like the hustle is not lacking, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's just maybe a little bit of, of knowledge on how to figure some of these things out, because it can be very daunting if, if, if you, if you're not used to it, if you don't know exactly what to do, but it's, su it's super easy once you know, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people have thought, oh, farming's easy. You know, anyone can do it, but they don't realize that farming is one of the most challenging businesses to run. Mm -hmm. And you have to know your numbers closer than many other ones um, because you're dealing with weather. Um, yeah. And you're dealing with, uh, well, bigger thing too, is you're dealing with um, overreaching government regulation, which causes the very small farmer to pay a significantly more percentage in complying with regulation in the big food businesses. So um, absolutely, yeah, you're just stacking injury and uh, <laughs> all sorts of things on top of there to make it farming really challenging. But um, let's uh, do a couple questions here. We wrap up. Um, what would you say if you were to go back and start your farm over again, what would you do differently from the start? 
it's a hard question, right? Because I feel like the path that we, we took is, is the best path because that's how you learn, right? Failing Mm. is the easiest way to learn because you don't forget that. Um, I definitely wish we had started with more land, um, but Mm -hmm. that's not always something that, you know, we couldn't afford any more land than we got when we got here. Um, I'm not doing a great job of answering your question, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, but I I think that's, but I think what you just said is in one aspect, very true. And you can come back to this, but I would say that even my mentor, Paul and Sandy, they would tell me things and I would still go make the same mistake because, Mm -hmm. you know, I may have not quite trusted them, but now that I've actually experienced it, now I can with confidence say, oh yeah, we ain't doing that again. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's, that that for us has been our biggest teacher. You know, we've read all the books, we've been to the conferences, we, um, you know, we're doing all the things, but, you know, experience is your best teacher. It really Mm -hmm. is. And so um, I think I would just have tried to move a little faster. Right. I, Mm -hmm. I feel like we overanalyzed a lot of things because we were so new and, um, you know, that wasted some time because we were scared to fail. And, and the truth is, is you're going to fail. So might as well be quick about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, what would you say your favorite tool on the farm is? That I was actually reading that in the prep and I was like, oh my gosh, we have no cool tools here. <laughs> like we, we really don't um, have anything fancy. Our tractor is like a 1970 Ford and it doesn't even work. Um, okay. Zip ties are my favorite tool because they fix everything around here. Um, I, if I had to pick a tool, I would have to say it has to be our mobile fencing because okay. we do so yep. much mob stocking. Um, yep. And so that would be my favorite tool. Okay. But back to the zip ties. I think yeah. that's super important too. I was actually using zip ties this morning to do something, to fix something. Um, yes. Yeah. It's farmer's duct tape, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Duct tape, five-gallon buckets, and zip ties. I think those are super important. Yeah. Uh, Anything else you'd like to share before we go? No, I just think that, I think that anybody who's interested in farming or knowing where their food comes from, um, like you said before, it's not easy. It's a hard job, but anybody can do it. You don't have to have this huge property. You don't have to have a ton of experience. Um, you need to be open-minded and you got to have thick skin because things Mm -hmm. are going to happen. Um, but it's just, you know, our tagline is no experience necessary, right? You don't have to have experience to really, um, to jump in and be a part of, of where your food comes from. So. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing your story and, uh, folks can find more about you at what the farm.com and it's what the farm life.com. All right. My mistake. Yeah. What the farm life.com and yeah. you on social media too, for people to follow you. Absolutely. It's what the farm VA for Virginia, what yep. the farm VA. Okay, perfect. Well, um, Kelly, appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and can't wait to share this with the audience. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Joining me is Dan from Steward, a mission-driven financial partner for farms across the US. Dan, right now, the meat processing industry is a hot topic and something that is a real challenge for small farms. Why is that? 
it's the hottest topic. Even people who aren't in livestock are talking about meat processing. So I, I think it's the real cog in the machine that people are realizing that without regional infrastructure that supports producers, that they can't get their product to market. And it's heavily regulated livestock processing in the U.S. And so there's no way around it. You know, you need real resources, you need real dollars, you need real infrastructure to support networks of producers to give them market access. So people know there's a huge problem and there aren't that many good examples of solutions. And certainly the people trying to also create other solutions have to raise a lot of funding and put a lot of pieces together to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's sad that only four or five meat packers control over 90% of the market. Most farmers struggling to find processing dates with some booking out two years in advance to even get like a pig in to get it processed. And then farmers have, you know, a cost of many multiples of what the big guys spend to process an animal, which means that they have to mark up their end product much more expensive as well. What vein are you taking to try to attack this problem? So we've spent the past few years at Steward working with uh, meat process, understanding the market better. We've just funded uh, Old Salt, which is a a co-op, a a network of producers who just in Helena, Montana, bought a processing facility and created a brand that they're going to sell under through these networks of ranchers from Montana. And so what, what Old Salt has shown for us is that you need regional scale systems. You need watershed scale systems. They're, They're kind of the hobby small scale processing, you need some level of infrastructure to make the numbers work, but you also need that processing connected to the land, connected to the people owned and controlled by producers and employees so that it's going to deliver a good service at a good price and the excess profit isn't going out of it. So part of, I think, building a new system around meat processing is is creating vertical integration among the producers and products and in sales. And that infrastructure is really where that meeting happens. And so we're, we're excited to support meat processing with Old Salt. We have many other projects in the pipeline where we can be useful in those deals is we can arrange not just loans through our platform, but we're also helping these projects access other types of funds. We have a grant writer who helps them access a lot of the processing money that's come through the USDA. Uh, we have other people on our team who help them navigate economic development programs that can be available and other programs. So what's really needed for meat processing is kind of comprehensive planning around the operations and the facility and the financing and a real long-term vision of what it's going to take to be successful in processing. Because it's not easy, but there has to be a different way. There has to be more producer control over processing. There have to be more options. And I think that's going to be in regional watershed scale networks with shared ownership among employees and producers mm-hmm. where the benefit is really accruing to those using it. Yeah. I think for us, we're here in Southwest Ohio, and we have struggled for over a year to try to find a protein producer that we can stock their products in our store. And it's just not out there. And obviously the processing is a major part of that. So it's a, it's a challenge all around. And I'm glad there's someone out there that's looking to attack it from the angle you guys are and providing that kind of funding. Well, we'll build one together for you. All right. If you're looking for a non-traditional mission-driven financial partner who understands the business of regenerative agriculture, reach out to gosteward.com today. Steward is transforming agriculture by equipping regenerative farms and food systems with the capital they need to grow. As a mission-driven financial partner, Steward works closely with agriculture businesses to scale their operations, improve the health of their lands and waters, and boister farm-to-regional food systems. To date, Steward has provided over $15 million in business loans to fund 75 unique projects backed by more than 1,500 participating lenders. 
Stewart is proud to be a certified B Corp. Seek financing or support a loan campaign at gosteward.com. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.